And we're continuing through our sermon series on the letters of Peter uh, to the churches. And his first letter, of course, being to uh, believers in the area that is now modern-day Turkey as they're looking at this situation where the culture is starting to turn right hostile towards them because of their faith. And his whole purpose has been, as we've been seeing over the past several weeks, is to remind them and encourage them in the living hope that is theirs in the gospel of Christ. And so then we come to 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22 this morning. This is God's word. Now, who is there to harm you If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good If that should be God's will, then for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's holy word. Now, While most of the Bible is clear and easy to understand so that even a child can grasp the wonder and the beauty of God's truth, especially when it comes to the gospel of how God saves, how he redeems people and forgives them of their sin and makes them his own. While that is very clear and easy to understand, there are a few places in scripture that are hard to make sense of. And part of this text here in First Peter is one of those hard texts. I mean, Peter talks about Jesus proclaiming in the Spirit to spirits imprisoned long ago. And he says here that baptism saves. And we say, well, wait a minute. We thought salvation was by grace through faith. Well, it is. Well, what is he saying here? This is a tough text. In fact, Martin Luther... He wrote that this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I do not know with certainty what the apostle means. And so if Martin Luther says that, I thought, well, great, I'm in good company. Uh, As I studied this text and tried to understand what God is saying for us as his people here, I'm like, Luther struggled with it. Great, it's okay for me to struggle with it too. Um, But as I wrestled and as, as we wrestle with Peter's words here as God's people, something beautiful actually emerges from it. 
Something that every Christian, every child of God needs to be reminded of again and again. And that great truth is that Jesus has won a victory for you if you are his child. You see, this passage is all about overcoming. It's about overcoming sin and suffering and death and evil, both in the supernatural world and in this world physical world in which we live. It's about Jesus' victory for you that creates that living hope that you and I both need because we live in this sin-cursed, broken world that often tells us that we are weak for believing the gospel. This life often makes us feel so unprepared. We feel that as Christians, we are often not ready for the trials and the, the suffering and the twists and turns of life, that we are not ready to, to respond to a world when they bring to us the hard questions about our faith, particularly the one that comes, why do you keep believing in this gospel if it means you might suffer for it? That's what Peter's original readers were being asked, and it's a legitimate question. Why? What is this hope that you have? Now, nobody enjoys being unprepared for the unexpected, especially if that unexpected is being dealt a hard season of life. But if you belong to Jesus by grace, through faith, then you are prepared to give an answer to those hard questions. You are prepared to even face suffering for your faith, even if it doesn't feel like it. Because you are prepared by the victory of Christ that he won for you. And so Peter starts with a familiar theme. We've been seeing this through his first letter here. It's come up several times already. And that is sometimes God's people do suffer for doing good. Sometimes you do suffer for honoring the Lord, for seeking to live for him, for simply believing the gospel. That is the very reason or occasion Peter wrote this letter to these Christians in ancient Turkey. And he says here in verse 13, he asks a rhetorical question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are zealous, if you have a zeal to do what would honor the Lord and show love to your neighbors. And the expected answer is to be, well, nobody. That's how it's supposed to be. That's the way the world was designed. If you do what is good and honorable and right, you should be treated honorably in return. That's what should be expected in normal circumstances. But this world is far from normal. The world doesn't function the way it was designed. It hasn't done that since the very first human sin. Because of that first act of rebellion from Adam and Eve, our first parents who defied God, then now the default of every human heart born into this world is to defy God. And we defy God when we do that. We treat often other people unjustly. We inflict unjust suffering upon each other. And this is what we've observed has been happening to the church there in Turkey. So Peter continues with another situation that often happens, not always, but it does happen, and that is that you suffer often for doing good. And so he says in the first part of verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And righteousness sake, of course, is the, your faith that is 
reflected in the, the way you live your life in worship of God. It's the good conduct he's been talking about the past couple chapters here uh, that, that points to God and honors him in your life. But as we've already noted the past couple of weeks, sometimes living that life of faith results in hostility towards us. And that hostility translates into unjust suffering of all kinds, from slander to public shaming to being ostracized for believing the truth, and even in some occasions for God's people to imprisonment or death. And nevertheless, when God's people suffer for righteousness' sake, when they suffer for their faith, Peter says, you are blessed. You are blessed not because of the suffering itself. Suffering is never a blessing. That's not what he's saying. But you are blessed because of the reason for your suffering. You are blessed because you have that unfading inheritance of God's grace. You have that future hope that is more sure than the sunrise itself, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your very souls. You have that hope. You are God's treasured possession and guarded by him. And so when you suffer unjustly, what he says here, what he's calling us to do as God's people is to not respond in fear, but in hope. Again, a familiar theme. Peter continues in verse 13 and 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. And then he says this, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is actually a reference to Isaiah chapter 12. And there in Isaiah 12, the Lord is comforting his people at that time, who was the southern kingdom of Judah, to not be afraid of this powerful alliance that had formed between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And they are breathing out threats to destroy Judah because of their faithfulness to God. But God says, don't fear. Don't fear those enemies. Don't trust what they trust. In fact, by citing this, Peter is reminding his readers that this threat of unjust suffering for their faithfulness to God isn't the first time this has happened to God's people. God's people have many times experienced danger because of their faith. And furthermore, this call to not fear or to be troubled is a call to trust in God's power and promises instead of trusting in earthly powers. In fact, literally, this this verse could read, as Peter says, have no fear. It's do not fear what others fear. You see, all people fear something. Even those who put on the strongest face of courage, they still fear. We don't all fear the same thing, but we all fear something. And if we let our fear control us, we end up serving that very thing that we fear. And so here, though, God calls believers to not fear suffering or death or what others fear, Don't fear even unjust suffering. Instead, have hope, or have hope how? By honoring Christ. He says literally, honor Christ. That is to set Christ apart as holy 
in your heart. Let Him be the one who you serve, who you fear. Let Him be the one who affects how you think and live your life. You see, when we honor Christ in faith, that faith translates into how we live our lives before others. And it especially becomes evident when, like Peter's original audience, you suffer unjustly for your faith. And here's why. Because it leads people to ask questions. Why would you follow Jesus if it means you'll be shamed? Why do you follow Jesus if it makes you an exile in the society? Why do you follow Jesus if it results in mocking and even suffering for your faith? And Peter says they're going to ask those questions. If you live in a way that honors Christ by trusting in Him, despite what may come, they will say, why are you doing that? And Peter exhorts us then, be prepared. Be ready when they ask those questions. He says, in your hearts, honor the Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that word here, In the Greek, for defense is apologia. That's where we get the word for apologetics. Uh, Apologetics, of course, is that discipline of being able to give a defense for the faith, for what we believe. It's technically a courtroom term uh, for a legal defense to prove that something is reasonable. And certainly there is application here from this verse, verse 15, that speaks to that discipline of formal apologetics. But I don't think that's what Peter exactly had in mind as he wrote this letter to these believers. Instead, he means for an ordinary response, an ordinary answer of believers to those questions regarding why they continue to believe Jesus despite the difficulty that faith might bring in their lives. And that answer is designed to point to one thing, to hope, to the hope that rests in the heart of every believer, the hope of the gospel, the hope of having your sins forgiven, the hope of a right relationship with God for all eternity, the hope that suffering and death will one day end, the hope that All that is wrong will one day be made right. The hope that is sure and steadfast because it rests upon the promises of an unchanging God. So that's why he says, when you give this answer of the hope within you, do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness towards man in an even-mannered way not emotional, and respect, which is literally fear, meaning fear of God. It is that fear of God that leads us to have a good conscience before Him. And how do we do that? Through faith, through our relationship with Christ. And so when people come to believers and question, why do you have this hope, even though you might suffer for it, what do you do? You answer by simply pointing them to Jesus. Peter says in verse 16, it is this kind of answer, pointing people to Christ, that will bring shame, he says, to those who revile you for doing good. Those who are mocking you, those who are making life difficult because of your faith, they will be shamed by your answer that points them to Christ. Now, we usually think of shame as guilt or embarrassment, uh, but that's not exactly the idea of shame as Peter writes about it here. 
shame in his day had to do with one's social standing. You were either honored or you were shamed. And shame was absolute disgrace, utter defeat. A general who lost a battle was shamed. He was at the mercy of his enemies. He had been overthrown and cast down. And that's the idea here. An answer that is given in this kind humility and respect for the holiness of God will defeat, that is the shame, the slander and the reviling of hateful mouths. It will stop them. You see, sin and evil and even suffering like imprisonment and death, they are not the final word in this world in the conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. But Jesus is, which is the main point that we come to in this text. Jesus' victory is what prepares you for suffering because it shows you that suffering and death are not the final answer in your life. Jesus is. Which brings us to these difficult verses here that Martin Luther talked about. Uh, Jesus' victory is what prepares you to have this answer for the hope within you. And by this, Peter means to encourage his readers then to see that Jesus' victory achieved for them that hope that they need to endure the suffering they were facing. So what was Jesus' victory? Well, he gives us a couple examples of it in this text. First, we see that he has victory over our sins for us. This is what we talk about when we talk about our justification. So that's the first aspect of this victory here. Verse 18 reads, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And now this is another strong statement from the scriptures about the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death on the cross. He suffered once for sins, says Peter. And that little phrase, for sins, that's really important. It comes up again and again and again in the Old Testament, in the ceremonial law, in reference to the temple sacrifices, specifically the sin offerings that were meant to atone for sin. When we speak of atonement, we mean the satisfaction uh, of a transgression or offense. Now, the sacrifices of that Old Testament ceremonial worship of God's people could never fully atone for sin. They were meant to point to the reality of the atonement that would take place when God's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be born at the appointed time and make that once for all atonement for his people. That's why the author of Hebrews writes that the law, speaking of those sacrifices, was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Therefore, the sacrifices that were offered for sin every year could not make perfect atonement for the people. As the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. But Jesus, being both God and man, was perfect. And thus his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, could perfectly remove sin of others. And that's why Peter says he did this 
once for all. We don't sacrifice him again and again and again. Because it happened once. And we simply celebrate that fact even in the Lord's Supper. That Christ shed his blood once and for all. To make us who were unrighteous, righteous before God. His death atoned and perfectly satisfied our sin and his resurrection that is being made alive in the spirit as Peter says here guarantees the perfect nature of that sacrifice nothing else was needed from that moment forward justification was final and complete for those for whom Christ died the victory over sin is yours if you are united to Christ by faith and repentance. And at this very moment, that victory is yours to rest upon and know that God does not look upon you in disfavor, but welcomes you as a son or daughter. That's the hope within you. Jesus has defeated all your sin by becoming that atonement that you needed. But not only did Jesus defeat sin, there's more to his victory here. That Peter writes about. You see, Jesus defeated, uh, defeated all evil powers, including supernatural evil powers. So we come now to this hard text here that Luther spoke of in verses 19 and 20. And he says that Jesus in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So there's been several interpretations of these verses throughout uh, church history. And many a Bible scholar, even going back to the early church fathers, has done their best to try to explain this in the light of all of Scripture. Now, some of those explanations and interpretations are downright heretical, and we would reject them outright. For example, some have taught that this uh, proclaiming to prison imprisoned spirits by Jesus was him going to people who lived during the Old Testament period of time who died in their sins. They never turned to God in repentance and faith. And he's just giving them another chance to believe. That is completely contrary to what we see clearly in the scriptures. So we never allow obscure text to interpret what we know is true and by the clear text. And that is that when you die, After that, there is the judgment. The time to repent and believe is now in this life, not the next. There is never another chance. Now is the day of salvation, says the Scriptures. But rather than spend time on all those odd interpretations, I'm going to give you two that I think are possible here and consistent with the rest of Scripture. The first is that Jesus, through Noah was preaching the uh, truth to the people of Noah's day. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And the idea is then that Jesus' spirit was proclaiming the truth of God through Noah. And that's possible because when we go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we do learn that the Spirit of Christ did preach through the prophets, predicting the sufferings and subsequent glories of Christ. And they wanted to know when these things would happen. 
But there is a little problem, I think, with that interpretation because this word translated spirits, it's never used to speak of human beings unless it's so qualified. And Peter doesn't do that here. So here's what I think is the most likely explanation. Although that one isn't wrong or heretical, it's certainly possible. But here's what I think is what he's talking about here is Jesus actually after his crucifixion and in the spirit, in the spiritual realm, because he says that, uh, and his resurrection, he proclaims then to Satan and all fallen powers, all evil supernatural powers, that Satan's head has now been crushed just as God promised. He is proclaiming his victory over supernatural powers. You see, this verse is really talking about Christ's ascension, that he is now the king who has defeated all his enemies. And he's ascending in victory to the right hand of God Almighty, declaring to Satan all evil powers, I won through the cross. You see, the timing of when these spirits rebelled, and that's a lot of the discussion around these verses. I don't think it really matters all that much. It's something that we speculate about. But what is important here is the victory that Christ achieved. He defeated supernatural evil. In fact, that's what he says in verse 22. He says, Jesus has gone into heaven and he's now at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, what? Subjected to him. He is over them. He is the king. Now, regardless of what view we take here, whether it's Christ preaching through Noah to the world of his day, or evil supernatural powers, the point of the passage is one of triumph, of victory. That's what Peter wants us to see, that Christ has won the day through the cross. Satan's head has been crushed. He is already defeated. He is already bound, which is why, which is why we continue to proclaim the gospel with confidence, and God blesses it, and he grows his church as the truth goes out to all nations. Because the gospel is not bound. Satan is. His powers are. Of course, there's an already not yet aspect to this. We, we know that Satan does sow seeds of, of chaos and sin and evil in this world. But evil is restrained. It's restrained because Christ has already defeated it upon the cross. And so people say, well, why are you willing to suffer for doing good? Suffer for your faith because Jesus has won the victory that we need. He's already defeated every evil power. And not just supernatural powers, but also earthly powers. And Peter's original audience needed to hear this because being slandered and ostracized by society for faith, being mocked and imprisoned or put to death for Christ, suffering unjustly, that's a very real earthly evil that the church has to face. And so Peter mentions Noah here because of that. You see, the flood in Noah's day was what? It was God's judgment of water upon the earth. In the flood, God judged the evil people 
of Noah's day who refused to repent and believe in the promise of God's grace. And God justly judged or vindicated his people being represented by Noah and his family saying, no, they are my people. I will save them. And the flood waters then, they were a judgment for sinners for the unrighteous, but they were also the salvation for the righteous as they carried the ark of safety upon them, which Noah had built. And so just as God did that for Noah, just as he used judgment to destroy evil and lift up and honor the righteous by saving them, so he does that for his people now. That's the idea here. All evil, both in heaven and earth, are defeated because of Christ's perfect victory achieved through his suffering, his resurrection, and his ascension. And that hope, that is the hope, brothers and sisters, that is yours if you are a recipient of God's grace resting in faith upon his promise to save you. Your sin is washed away. You are justified It has been atoned for. And Satan and all supernatural evil powers are defeated. Jesus has told them that for you. And then all human earthly powers that want to harm you because of your faith in Christ, they will be judged. They are already judged. And God will vindicate you by His power. And We have a mark of that that tells us all that truth. Peter tells us here, you are marked with the victory of Christ if you are part of his covenant people. And here's how he says that, which is the second controversial passage. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, baptism now saves you. And you hear that and you say, well, what? What are you talking about, Peter? Because I thought the gospel was all about trusting in Christ alone. I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you are, and your baptism actually preaches that to you. Obviously, Peter isn't teaching baptismal regeneration here, that idea that by simply having water put upon us, we are somehow given new life and made right with God. That's not what he's saying. It would be contrary, again, to the clear teaching of Scripture, which says it is the Holy Spirit that regenerates hearts which are dead in sin and that we are saved by faith alone. So what does he mean by baptism saves? Well, real quickly in closing, there are three things here that he says, and I'm going to give them to you quick here. Uh, First, notice he says that baptism corresponds to the flood in Noah's day. What was that flood? We just talked about it. It was the judgment of God upon sinners for their continued rebellion against him. And that judgment, while it judged evil, was also the vindication for God's people, lifting them up, bringing them to salvation because the flood waters bore up the ark. That's the idea here, is that your baptism does point to the judgment of God. It is a reminder that God is holy and must judge sin. Either that sin is judged at the cross for you, which means you're united to Jesus and your sin has already been judged and it is forgiven 
because Christ bore that judgment for you or will be judged when Christ returns as judge over all the earth. So your baptism then saves you by reminding you of what God has done. You see, it's not the the act itself. It's what it is pointing to. The fact that God does judge. But if you are in Christ, there is no fear of that judgment. For you are His. Secondly, Peter says that baptism saves, and this is important, not the removal of dirt from the body. That is to say, baptism does not wash away the the stain of sin, the works of our flesh. The mechanical rite of baptism itself is not what saves you. It's a sign and a seal of the washing away of sin that is done only by Jesus' blood on our behalf. So it doesn't remove our sin any more than the Old Testament sacrifices removed those sin from the people of God back then. But it points, just as those sacrifices did, to the one who does remove our sin, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, your baptism isn't about what you have done or what your pastor did for you. It's about what Jesus has done for you. It communicates God's grace to you. Sometimes baptism, as I said, it's it's presented as a public confession of your faith, of, of, of me believing in Christ. But that misses the whole point of what Peter's talking about here, what he's trying to get us to see. And that is that baptism is more about what Jesus has done in delivering you from your sin and God's judgment. And that is one reason why in our Presbyterian and Reformed understanding of the sacrament of baptism, we do apply it to our children because it doesn't matter when it's applied. It's simply a sign pointing to what Christ does when we believe in Him. We want then our children to grow and to be nurtured in the faith so that as they are part of this visible covenant people of God, the church, they will one day become part of the invisible people of God through their own faith. And that's what Peter means when he gives the third qualifier here. He says, baptism saves as an appeal for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. That appeal is a pledge of our faith to God. That's how we have a good conscience with God, by appealing to Christ in faith. And so our baptism then is the visible sign and seal of that faith. It points to our union with Christ that is achieved by faith alone. And it does not matter then if that faith comes before baptism or after it because ultimately it is Jesus who saves us from God's holy judgment. So putting this all together then, suffering for our faith, it happens because we live in a sinful, broken world. But we know that that's suffering. We know that even death itself is not the final answer, the period on our lives. Why? Because Jesus has already won a victory for us. He has defeated our sin. He has defeated all evil powers. And he has defeated the evil that exists in this earth. And if you are baptized, if you've been marked with the sign of his covenant love to you, then you know that that victory is yours in Christ alone. 
And it is that victory that prepares you. It prepares you for every hostile word, every question that people might bring, even though you feel like you're not qualified, it prepares you because you're simply pointing them to the victory that Jesus has won for you. You have a hope, a living hope, and no amount of suffering and injustice can ever take that away, the hope of Christ's ultimate victory. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this living hope that is ours as your people. We're thankful that you do make, uh, you have made that atonement for us once and for all through Christ our Lord and his sacrifice and his resurrection and his ascension. And we can stand before you as your people forgiven. We're thankful that even through that death, he has triumphed over Satan in all evil powers, that the the head of the serpent has been crushed even through the bruising of the son's heel. And we're thankful that you are a holy God who will vindicate your people, that you will judge those who continue in evil and even would treat us unjustly that you will bear us up over that judgment because you have already judged us in Christ and declared us righteous. So, Father, help us to walk in the victory that is ours as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.